Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hunt for Real podcast. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. Today, I sit down with a fellow that you might know if you've ever been flipping through the channels and you saw some big naked dude hunting Impala in Africa or maybe pigs in the Amazon. His name is Matt Wright, and he's been on the show Naked and Afraid quite a few times. He spent like I can't remember 180 days in the in the wild naked or something some crazy number like that. He's also a really well accomplished traditional bow hunter, which which are some skills that he shows on Naked and Afraid. He hunts with an atlatl uh, pretty successfully, I might add. Really interesting guy. Um, lots of cool stories about what it's like to be out there and living off the land and how he got into the kind of hunting that he got into and just a really, really neat interview. Um, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do that. You'll get every episode we drop every week. If you haven't given us a five-star rating, we would love that. If you haven't left us a good review, uh, we would also love that. All that little stuff helps us out so much in this stage of building up this podcast. Um, and lastly, like always, I just want to thank everybody for listening. I know you have a ton of choices in this space. This this public land bow hunting type market is flooded with podcasts, and I get that. So that you come here and you listen to us, it means so much to me. So thank you for that. In one minute, everything can change and it can become the best hunt of your life. It's a reality. Really understanding the landscape, that's what kills big deer. Matt Wright, welcome to the Hunt for Real podcast, buddy. Hey, how are you? I, I am. Here. I'm doing excellent, man. How are you? That's good. Holding in. You're, you're you're holding together. We were just talking a little bit about uh, the pandemic and how it's changed our lives and how we're all ready to get back to normal. And your life, uh, for those lis- those of us listening here is not anything remotely normal. Uh, you're not, you're not, uh, <laughs> not an average cubicle dweller. You're not somebody who we would expect to see in everyday life. You've, you've taken a wild path and you're probably most well known for naked and afraid. And I know you're probably sick of talking about that, but we got to talk about it a little bit. Oh uh, yeah. So bef- before we start on that, uh, Kate, our producer, who, you know, she asked me a question to ask you, uh, when we started this and she was too right. embarrassed to ask it. So she, when I started <laughs> talking to her today, she goes, do you think Matt ever got a thorn in his wiener? And that I is, hey, uh, that might be the first time somebody's <laughs> asked me that exact question. I've gotten, <laughs> have I been stung on the wiener? I've, I've had, you know, all the different questions you can imagine. But yes, Ugh. yes, there's been a, a few times, let's say, uh, waist high thorn bushes are not very fun for naked. Yeah, it you uh, know- gives you a good appreciation for just the. Uh, Thinnest pair of pants. Yeah, and so I, I was kind. Of, I've been kind of binging Naked and Afraid because I had, I had watched a few episodes randomly, uh, but then when you know we found out we were going to get you on and we're going to have your wife on later, there I was like, go. I got, I got to watch this because I, I have a few buddies who are like really into it and their wives are really into it. Oh and yeah. They always said to me, you know, there's one guy who actually seems to know how to hunt, and it was you. And so I'm watching this, and I'm going, you know, the first thought is. How the hell do you get your feet to where you can handle that? So on average, it, uh, production gives you about uh, anywhere from anywhere from essentially six days to two months or more. Um, 
And uh, I've had as little as six days notice and as much as a couple months. And the very first thing I do every time is make sure I go out there and start walking barefoot. Well, most of us, you know, we, we love our hunting boots. Why? Because it protects our feet. So as soon as you go and start walking around barefoot, you realize, man, you know, wearing those boots every day really takes our feet and makes them like little wimps. Mm-hmm. And you'll immediately, your first week you're walking out, your feet hurt, your feet are sore. Um, so you get out there and you just start doing as much as you can barefoot. Um, I am to the point now I've done so many of these. Yep. It, uh, you know, I've gone on six of these challenges now. So for me, it, it's any minute I could get a phone call to go back out. So I always try to keep my feet in a state of a little bit of readiness. Mm-hmm. And Colorado is not exactly um, all year round, you know, walking around barefoot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, the production part of this almost always seems to happen in the fall and winter. So then you go out and you're like, yeah. oh, I got to walk barefoot in the snow. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, so it's, it makes a definite challenge your feet and, uh, and the better you can walk, you know, barefoot, the better you're going to be able to do. But that's why you'll see me on there often, you know, go out immediately, kill something, make some shoes out of it because, yeah. you know, feet are tough. Do you find when you're doing that? Cause you know, it, you know, 99.99% of people will never get the chance to, or it will never put themselves through that with their feet. Do you find, cause you, you hear this about people running trail running barefoot or using those, those shoes that kind of like the individual toes are like gloves for your feet. Oh yeah. And they, they realize like, you know, we've kind of atrophied stabilizer muscles and yeah. you know, like you said, we let our feet turn into wimps. Do you find like oh, they definitely. catch up pretty quickly and you actually feel like you can do pretty good out there without boots after a while? Yeah, oh, yeah definitely. It's, you know, it's, What's weird is, you know, like right now, for example, I'll go up when I go out, I use actually a minimalist boot mm-hmm. and that's just a zero drop. There's no big heel. When you walk, it feels like you're wearing kind of moccasins and uh, that kind of helps train those muscles and everything ready. Um, first thing you notice, you know, when you're walking barefoot for a long distance, you get tired a lot faster. And oddly enough, the little bit of heel that we have on our boots, it propels us slightly mm-hmm. forward as we're stepping. And as we're stepping, it's almost kind of, you know, a little bit of a fulcrum point to help us, you know, propel forward. Yep. As soon as you start walking barefoot, you realize, man, the calves are sore. You know, your, your, you know, legs are working harder than they would be. Um, and you're not even carrying around a boot or anything. Mm-hmm. So, it, uh, so in about five or six days, you kind of have this, like your feet are in pain or hurting. As long as you can keep yourself and get too many thorns, they'll start to get tough and you'll feel all of a sudden, you know, you feel like I'm kind of a connection with the earth. And by 10 days, 15 days, then you're, you're feeling pretty comfortable. Now, by 30 days then, I would prefer barefoot over shoes. And, you know, the thorniest spots, you know, a little thin, you know, bit of animal hide under your shoe, under your foot's going to be, you know, better than barefoot. But mm-hmm. it still it gives you a connection to the earth. So I've never had more success stocking up barefoot, you know, way better than you can walking, you know, with boots on. Because if you step on a branch, mm-hmm. you could feel it. Before it even breaks, you could actually release your foot. Even if it does break, your foot actually like, you know, sits there and sort of uh insulates it. Yeah. So it's it is it's wild, but you you get to the point where you actually prefer the no shoes. Mm-hmm. Sort of. I, I mean, I, I was curious about that because the, the shows I watched, you know, you, you're you're famous for taking a, a, a trad bow out there and hunting on these shows a lot. And yeah. I'm, I'm watching you walk around and it made me realize the other episodes I had seen, 
it, you, you watch people walk and you go, that person's never hunted. Like they've never yeah, tried no. to be quiet. And I'm watching you and I'm going, this dude knows what he's doing. And then what impressed me so much was on the Africa show where you'd built the blind on the water hole and you missed a bunch of stuff coming in because it looked at kind of long shots and everything was like a little bit spooky in your first blind. And yeah. then when you built it up more and then you started using that tree in front of you, I go, this guy knows yeah. what he's doing. Like you, I could see the setups on some of those Impala and stuff and you're going... This guy recognized the hunting situation. Yeah. It wasn't quite right. Fixed it, fixed it again, yeah. and then started killing stuff. And I was wondering, when you when you were actually successful, because I know you've killed some pigs, and I, I saw you kill a warthog too. Um, how like how receptive was the network to that? Because it's it's a survival show, but it's like it sort it's, of mainstream, not hunting it show. It's, you know, it's crossing the line that you know hasn't really been crossed, and that's like network television showing that, you know, kill shot from the hunting show. And, uh, and as a hunting perspective goes, like I found some real big challenges, just, just hunting out there on that show is, you know, camouflage. That mm -hmm. was the one thing that got me off the back is I'm a shiny human. Even when I'm covered in mud, eventually it falls off and then she starts sweating. And you wrote, that's when you realize like, okay, that's why we came up with camo. It's why we came up with certain things. And as I'm on the, as you know, as I'm going through those different battles, it uh you're dealing with production and these guys are not they're not sitting there filming a high dollar hunting show yeah. they're filming a <laughs> an la an la tv show and i mean they won't help you but what they do all the time is hurt you yeah. and so i'll be covered in mud covered in elephant dung and pala dung sitting there flies eating me you know you know mosquitoes whatever it might be ants all over me and then Harris camera guy wearing bright yellow aftershave and I'm like, oh, come on. So I had to learn real quick. I had to out hunt my camera crew. Yep. And I would have to build them a blind and myself a blind. And then I'd have to set them up in a way that they knew they could figure out, like, you know, to get that hunting shot because they mm -hmm. didn't know that hunting shot. They never had to take that before, you know, in the filming world, really. So so I would set it up. Now, I'm hungry enough. I'm not going to wait too much for that perfect shot mm -hmm. to get that animal in the perfect window. So you can see that, you know, kill shot with the arrow, but at the same time, I need it to be relevant enough. So people understand what's really happening. The true, you know, true moment. Yeah. And, you know, once I got the first big game animal on the, sh on the show's history was down in the, uh, the, in the Amazon jungle. And that was the jungle pit. Now that I killed it out by myself. I just go pro in my head. And when I came back, production was like, floored because they were like whoa you know how are we going to show this like this guy just killed this big animal now we're gutting it and uh we're you know we're doing all the field prep and they're looking around like do we film this you know the gutting part of this mm -hmm. do we film like you know the actual field dressing all the important part that it, us hunters don't even think twice about but the network was like so they filmed it but they didn't show it Mm -hmm. They felt like, you know, the public wasn't quite ready to see, you know, guts yet. Well, then when they aired it, you know, they, they thought, okay, they even told me, they're like, hey, you're probably going to get attacked by anti-hunters. You know, PETA people are going to blow you up. Well, then it aired and I'm waiting. <laughs> I knew like, you know, there's, there's animal rights people that are going to blow me up for killing an Amazon pig and, you know, the pristine Amazon. Yep. And I'm waiting and waiting. All of a sudden it airs. There's nothing but like respect, you know, for me, because I gave that animal respect. I showed it respect in the woods and I was kind of, I was like, wow, nothing yet. Well, then I get a phone call 
driving home and a phone call. And it's, it's this lady who, who immediately says, Hey, I'm so-and-so I'm president of this West chapter, something, something PETA organization. And I thought, <laughs> oh, here it is. So I thought this would be entertaining, right? I was like, all right, I'll listen to her. Just rip me apart. And I was like, okay, you know, what would you like to say? And she's, and then she starts talking. She's like, well, I saw you, you know, you get that pig in the Amazon. And I thought, okay, here it is. And all of a sudden she starts getting emotional. And as she's getting emotional, I'm listening even harder here. And she's like, she's like, you know, I saw you, you know, she, she talks about how I showed so much emotion and some part of my soul for that pig. And then she starts breaking down crying. She says she no longer can support PETA. She no longer can can uh, be against hunters because she realizes it is is a part of our soul to hunt. It's how we existed before. And I'm sitting here. I'm like, and she just wanted to tell me, call me and tell me personally that I changed her life. <laughs> Big day. That's I mean, I just turned a Peter person around, yeah. Yeah, which is huge. First thing I did, I called Brooke. I was like, Brooke, you would not believe what happened. Peter called me. She's like, oh, what did they say? And I'm like, no, they wanted to thank me. Yep. <laughs> and ever since that first pig, now I've gotten, uh, I think I'm eight, eight or so big game animals. Not all of them have been, have aired necessarily with the timing they had to air them. But every time now I've had positive feedback because I didn't sit there and, you know, and kind of grotesque that animal. I didn't sit there and like yell and stomp on it and drag it, throw it over a hill, you know, anything Anything like grotesque. I did what all us hunters, our true hunter does, mm -hmm. and he gets emotional after the kill and gets respect for that animal. And, you know, it was amazing. But every time now, so far, as it airs worldwide, it, uh, I've gotten a lot of incredibly positive feedback. You know, a lot of people say, you know, I don't know why you need to hunt those. And then they look at the, you know, they watch the show and they're like, I got to hunt it. You yep. know, you, that's part of us. Well, so it's positive. That, that's enough. super interesting because, you know, I kind of, when I started watching the shows, I was like, I go in expecting this Hollywoody version of yeah. survival, you know? And yeah, there's like, there's obvious production elements, you know, there's drone shots and things like that that you're just yep. going to get. But there's also just a very real, uh, portrayal of people hunting hungry and oh, like that's such a it seems like so intuitive but it's such a simple bridge between not understanding why you would do it and completely yeah. understanding why you do it and you can see you know it, it, there's a lot of shock value to it of course you know you're showing predators all the time and you're showing you're showing all the nasty stuff that can get you but you it's yep. palpable that people are hungry and they're getting skinnier and it's no, like definitely. their their world is being reduced to survival, and a huge part of that is just getting enough calories every day. And you watch people, yeah. I mean, you watch people, and you go, "These people are like trying to catch grasshoppers and stuff." And then there's yeah. other people out here trying to kill a pig. <laughs> oh, like, you get you get incredibly hard up. And then I've always I always tell people, you know, as you watch watch these episodes, you'll see me say often, you know, I'm dangerous when I'm hungry. And it's not that I'm just like coming up with some cliche cliche thing to say it mm -hmm. is truly once your body gets into that hunger mode now it's it sucks all of us know that time where we miss that opportunity or miss that shot at an elk or deer you know turkey whatever we're wherever we're hunting mm -hmm. but when you're out there and you're surviving and you know that you may only get one opportunity that entire you know that entire time to to get ahead of the game and if you miss it it will haunt you for for way way longer 
than you would ever haunt you in a normal hunting situation because you know that that's your survival. Mm-hmm. I view it like like there is no end. I have to survive every day as if I'm going to be out there forever. And so then you're out there and you get hungry. Now, each step, the entire day, you're hunting. You know, a lot of times I think as hunters, we will walk fast to get to where we're going. Yep. We've all spooked game on the way to where we're going. Mm-hmm. And out there, you can't make that mistake. You have to take every advantage you can because you're naked. You're not, you know, it's not like you have scent, scent free soap on or, yep. you know, you're not at all in, in like the advantage of that game. Yep. And because of that, every step is so important that when you do get hungry, you, you really have to grit down and say, okay, I'm hungry now. If I don't get something, I'm going to be real hungry. And that's when you, you know, you go out, you make, you try to make something happen. Now mm-hmm. I've eaten a lot of scorpions on the way to hunt, but they don't show a lot on the episodes. You know, you see, you'll see, ah, oh, Matt killed all these game animals. Well, you didn't see it as I was lifting rocks and, and mowing down on scorpions because I needed something to give me energy from point A to point B to even hunt that day. And before you know it, you walk seven, eight miles, 10 miles in a day. You just burned thousands of calories and yep. you ate nothing but like three scorpions. Well, if you, next day you're like, okay, I got to up my game. I either got to eat 30 scorpions or, a, or I got to kill something. And, and eventually you, you, you know, get behind the eight ball a little bit and it's all about, you know, that opportunity to get back ahead and you have to sometimes eat that stupid little stuff. Well, that's interesting because, you know, most people don't get into a position where they're truly hungry, like where, where the, yeah. they can feel it in their body. The energy's gone. The mental capacity starts to slip a little bit. And I, I think the closest most of us get is on those elk hunts or those, you know, high country hunts where you might, you might set out for a half a day with a half a day's worth of food. And all of a sudden you've climbed, you know, a couple thousand extra vertical feet and you've been following bugling yeah. bulls. And all of a sudden you're like, yep. you just, you become more in tune with your body. And that's, that's one of the reasons why some of these endurance athletes are so good at backcountry hunting. Aside from just yeah. being in shape, they're just in tune to the fact like they know how to fuel. And when you're in yeah. that situation, you don't, you don't have that choice. And like, I, I, I'm wondering about that because I can't imagine a scenario in my life where I'd be hungry enough to eat scorpions personally, but yeah. I also am not in that <laughs> situation. It, like, how do you prepare for that? You, so you get the call, you're like, okay, I'm going to Africa. I mean, it's going to be however many days, however many weeks you start brushing up and going, okay, I can eat this. No consequences. I can eat this. How do you, how do you yeah. prepare you for know, that? You, like, like I said, you get a little bit of prep time. So you kind of, what you do immediately is you get on there and you try to find out what can you find? Well, certain places in the world, you know, there's a lot of information. People have wrote, you know, books and documentaries and all kinds of things about it. In other places, you know, very little has actually been written about. It. And once you get out there, you could read everything in the world. But the one that comes down to how perfect is your memory. Mm-hmm. I've read, you know, like, books on books of, of different locations. And then you get out there and you look and you're like, man, that tree I've read about, I either it's, it's going to be a food source or it's going to kill me. Mm-hmm. So you have to make, you have to, you know, you sit there, you're like, okay, if you don't know a hundred percent, if that's the tree that kills you or cures you, then you just, you really can't eat it. And I've gone entire challenges just staring at those trees, trying to remember, you know, what the heck does that do? You get out of the challenge and you find out, oh, it cures an upset stomach. And you're like, that wouldn't have done anything for me. You know, it, uh, <laughs> and so, so, you know, you know, the plant life is tricky. There's some things that we're very familiar with that, you know, we have in Colorado that you'll find similarly anywhere. 
mm-hmm. that you can eat, but it doesn't really give you any like good calorie content. But what I know I could always eat is pretty much almost every animal and fish. And so I go out there and I'm like, you know what? I'll pass on eating something that looks like wild spinach. And instead, I'll go for that squirrel or I'll go for that rat or hell, I'll go for that scorpion because, you know, as most things go, you can eat them and you, you have a less of a risk of, of really getting yourself in trouble because plant life can kill you real quick. You know, animal life, even bugs, it, as long as you're familiar with what you're eating a little bit of and uh, you're not swallowing, you know, you're not swallowing some, you know, toxic frog. It's a uh, you're pretty safe. Yeah. And <laughs> I've gone and I've eaten some weird things. I mean, I've eaten an ant in Thailand was like it was about that big, it's gigantic ant. It's it literally could carry a quarter. I guarantee if you strapped a quarter to its back, it'd carry a quarter and carry it away. And uh, that ant was so big. I'm eating like hundreds of these what these little fire ants they had that tasted like Frank's red hot hot sauce, which was surprisingly good. <laughs> And I'm eating hundreds of these, and I thought, man, that's one ant. That's like 50 ants. I just eat that one ant. And that ant is still to this day one of the worst things I've ever eaten in my life. It was like I just scraped something off the road from roadkill and Uh. took a bite in like the nastiest roadkill. It it was so bad I couldn't even like get my, my mouth to spit it out. I just had to like let it fall out. And, you know, it's like, okay, lesson learned. (laughs) <laughs> Don't eat slow ants. If anything's slow, in the wild, I found out its self-defense is most likely tastes like shit. So the uh, so you have to uh, you have to really if it's fast, if it's hard to catch, most likely it's safe to eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, does it does it make you think? You know, because you, you talk about becoming somewhat of a browser with the plant life and you see that a lot like that's a strategy a lot but it, the, yeah. the juice really isn't worth the squeeze because of the calorie content and the nutritional yeah. content's pretty low so then the next logical thing is insects because they're probably easier to find and easier to catch but yeah. the reality is going out and arrowing a pig is like you know no. 10,000 times better i mean it, it makes me think like there's a reason you know, 10,000 years ago, they were making cave drawings of, you oh, know, elk and not asparagus. Down. You know, I mean, like it, it just yeah. means so much more to you for survival. Oh, that, I mean, without a doubt, like when you when you look back in the primitive people, I'm sure they ate a lot of bugs and grubs and everything else in between. And, you know, if you look at like, you know, some of the plant life, yes, they ate. But you can't live most plants. You, there's no way you can live long term off plants. Mm-hmm. So they hunted these big animals. And on the challenge for me, it, uh, for example, you know, Amazon, right? No one's ever killed a big game animal on the show. And I'm in the Amazon and I was, I'm not going to lie. The Amazon is intimidating to mm-hmm. walk around butt naked, barefoot. And you're not familiar with it. It's not like you get a boot camp in the Amazon to like learn the place before they put you naked. You're freaking naked. And seen it for the first time. And I'd walk out with no production crew, just GoPro on my head, no radio, no GPS, nothing. If I got lost, I was lost. If I got hurt, I was hurt. I mean, it was without a doubt, it's yes, it is TV show, but you could die on that show incredibly, insanely fast if you're not careful. And I'd walk out there, I'd walk, you know, I'd walk past Bushmaster snakes, I'd walk past, you know, all kinds of venomous insects. And I would, I was sitting there, I'm like, this is stupid. I was like, you know, why am I pushing myself this far to try to get one of these pigs? And then I thought to myself, well, that's what that's what us humans did, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the throughout history. No one, 
You know, if you stopped every time you saw, you know, something creepy and you were like, that's it, I'm not walking any further, then you would never, you'd never have got it succeeded. Yeah. And I pushed myself where, you know, it was to the point of if I got turned around, I was lost for a while. <laughs> Amazon, you'd be lost for a long time. Yep. And I pushed myself then and I just got a little bit further. And when I went that little bit further, I connected with that pig and I realized right then that, you know, that's, that's what we did as people, really. Mm -hmm. It's, it's cool. It's a really neat thing is you see those cave paintings, like you were saying, or you read about the people of, of various eras, you know, they probably went days and weeks and maybe months without that big kill. But once they figured out that they could get it, there was no turning back after that. It's, you know, that was their main focus throughout, you know, just about every single civilization. Yeah. I mean, it's that. That motivation, you know, we, we can't go back in time and tell why people left where they did and, and came to here and, and made it to other places. But yeah. the most likely scenario is they were just hunting. And, it, you know, I mean, yeah. some, some people think it might have just been curiosity. They think there's other reasons. But if you think about it, it's like if you're hungry and there's not food here, you're going to yeah. go find it somewhere. You're going to go. You're going to go some crazy distance. And uh, and I mean, to tell you, when you're out there and you like I always tell people now, it's like if you want to go on a true you want to go in that backcountry hunt. Decide to not, you know, bring food because you might need it, but try not to eat it. And about three days of not eating anything, all of a sudden you're going to see colors you haven't seen before. You're going to hear things you can't, you'll smell things and your body changes. And I think that's part of our survival adaptation is we become, you know, better hunters, the hungrier we are. And that's what kind of drove us, you know, drove us to succeed at, uh, and through all those years. Uh, so uh, that kind of reminds me of something I was planning on asking you. Do you think that reaction, like that, that the way that you change in that situation after a couple of days of no food and you, do you think it's like your, your brain is like, Hey, I'm closing every browser window except the predatory ones. And I'm going, I'm going yep. like, we have to be as good as possible right now. Otherwise we don't survive. Is it like, is there, is there sort of a weird I don't, I don't know how to put this. Is there sort of like a weird freedom to that? Or like, is there something you enjoy about that where it's like yeah. just checking into that state? Oh, without a doubt. It's, you know, and it's, it's like nothing else because now as you know, I mean, I hunt with clothes on, <laughs> you're not going to catch me through the national forest, you know, hunt butt naked because it sucks. And, uh, but when you're out there and you're stripped of everything and you get to that hungry point where all of a sudden everything, every animal sound, you're starting to understand it. You don't even understand why necessarily you understand it or how that bird is telling you that there's something ahead. But it's it's sort of it's sort of something that happens with with your body. All you have now is you don't have all these things in your life. And there's so much cluster in our lives that that just walking into a new place or new hunting ground. We all have that where we it's we sometimes may not see something, we you know, until we've gone there multiple times and then everything condenses. And you'll see it in sort of this magnified view. Mm -hmm. And same thing happens in our life. There's all this cluster, all these things happening until you get to that point where you're, you're hungry, you're tired, you're bug bit. And what counts is, you know, the important parts. And that is, you know, get those nutrients, get that next step to get yourself back in the game. Because as soon as you eat it, you go back and your vision sort of opens back up. And now you start. You might start worrying about something stupid that's not even happening. You might, you know, you'll be sitting there, you'll be like, God damn it, I got something stuck in my tooth. And it's the small things like yep. you're, you could care less about when you were hungry in that moment you were focused. And then as soon as you're full, you kind of opens back up 
And then as soon as you get hungry again, you get, you know, even better, you know, better than it was before. So it's kind of neat. It, it is neat. And it, there's something there too. I think, um, you know, I, I live in the world of whitetails. I mean, I hunt out West a lot, but I live in Minnesota and I write about whitetail hunting all the time. And in whitetail hunting, it's so easy to check in and check out. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you can go, a lot of people go sit the back 40 or the grandpa's farm or whatever. And, they, you know, go sit and stand for a couple hours. You come out and you never really get into the zone. Like, like you do if yeah. you go into the back country for seven days or 10 days where you, oh, that's, that's all you have to do is you're just living in that moment, especially if your phone doesn't work and you can't check into Facebook and all that yeah. BS, you realize yeah. it sort of takes a couple of days to shed like the, all the distraction and stuff and just be like, okay, well, I'm in the moment and this is all I have have to do and i, I kind of know what you're talking about because it's yeah. i think it's a huge hindrance to like modern hunters now where it's very easy us for us to be really comfortable go into the woods for a little bit and come out we're never yeah. like really immersed oh yeah and and if you force yourself to go there and you stay and you know you lay it would you know like when you're on these kind of challenges it's kind of what it forces you to do it'd be like the same as going to the backcountry sneak it up on that herd of elk but if you can't get close enough you just lay down and sleep there all night mm -hmm. and you know very rarely does somebody do that they'll walk back they'll get back to their camp you know they'll and they'll sit there they'll have their their modern you know their modern confusion of sorts around and then go back out and try to get them in the morning and something changes when you sit there and you listen to the, all the animals at night without the stuff around you know you're you're you know, you may be hungry you may be freezing you may just be bug bit, tired, you're, you know, swampy feet, whatever you might have. And I'll tell you, it's, it's really is a, is a eye-opening experience how much better that next day will become if you could sit there and, and never leave it. Mm -hmm. You know, each day gets, you just get a little bit more in height, you know, in tune with it. And I mean, in Africa, I have barely crawled up to 10 feet from a kudu that hears incredibly good. I mean, it's hard mm -hmm. for a leopard or a lion to get 10 feet from a kudu. Yep. And I've crawled up that close to try to get a shot. And I realized man, never in my life would I have been that patient to get 5,000 ant bites as I crawled through that little bush, you know, that took two hours to go 30 feet just to get that close. You know, I would have stayed out that bush mm -hmm. and may or may not have gotten a shot. And that's, it's really is, you know, it's, it just makes you focus on, on the important part and you just have to suck up those other parts. Yeah, for sure. So uh, on that note, what, what's worse then? It, was it the insects or was it the predators? Oh, without a doubt, insects, yeah. it, uh, to me, you know, statistically speaking, if you do certain things, you will not have a predator attack you mm -hmm. most statistically. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, the insects, there's sometimes there's not a damn thing you could do about those insects. Sometimes you can cover yourself in mud. Sometimes the fire will do it, the smoke. Mm -hmm. Other plants might help. But I'll tell you what, when you're fully exposed is when you really understand that there's no way of stopping them. There's really not. Like, you're up there in the backcountry, we got mosquitoes in Colorado. You know, the people don't even realize how bad our mosquitoes can be. Mm -hmm. And you'll be up there, a trout pond or something, just getting eaten alive. But then you look at it. Now I look at it, I'm like, man, only my arms, my face, and a couple exposed parts were, you know, like you're out there naked. You're like, your junk mm -hmm. is getting more bites, you know, than, than you ever thought humanly possible. And that's just part of the problem. Yep. And uh, before you know it, you're just like, wow, you know, I've had bot flies growing on my back. 
because I laid so long looking for an Impala to stand back up and uh, that the bot flies are just biting and just sticking, sticking and all of a sudden larva the next few days. It's like, oh, <laughs> and uh, the bugs are the bugs are horrific. It's a uh, now the predators will keep you alert. You know, you'll uh, without a doubt, like a lot of when a lot of people watch Naked and Afraid, and uh, one of the first things they tell me, ah, they won't let you die. <laughs> and I laugh at him every time because it's like, okay, right, let me paint the picture. Our camera guy and our sound guy and our producer, it's about the main, the three people that are somewhere, you know, behind you doing something. They're not like a team of Chuck Norris. You know, they, they are not going to be able to like keep that spitting cobra from biting you. They're not going to be able to like keep that leopard that they can't, nobody could see because it's a leopard, you know, from jumping out and, and getting you. It, uh, they're there. They could call a medic after something happens. But uh, every time I've had a serious, serious incident of a leopard, say, charge in or something, that camera crew never once did one of them just jump in front of me and say, oh, no, I got this. Like it's <laughs> no, either I saw nothing but boots, you know, because that old saying goes, you know, make sure you can outrun your buddy. Mm-hmm. Well, when your buddy's got the. Uh, bare feet naked you they almost always outrun us mm-hmm. so it's a it really is it's a a real as you could get kind of moment yeah and you statistically just have to keep yourself safe as possible like you know you see a leopard make sure he sees you make mm-hmm. sure he knows you are not gonna run um elephants have charged it uh that uh you know it's a it's a crazy deal when you're out there like a native naked fighting you know fighting against these elephants you'll see ears out and you're like Phew bluff charge you know okay hold your ground well then you see ears back and then you think oh man i should run but then ears come back out and you're like oh 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 and uh and you're sitting there you're like man you know you and i've had them charge me i've had them to where you had to run and mm-hmm. it's like jurassic park with them like mowing trees down behind you and you realize okay you know this is something you would never do to yourself normally but worth worth every step of it in my opinion like it's it's really is just a you know, the kind of thing you wouldn't normally do. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think there's something, I mean, obviously there's something to humans, especially men where we don't, there, we aren't afraid a lot. Like in, in general mm-hmm. life, you like, you don't know real fear very often. You know I mean? There are people who have careers and jobs and stuff who do, but most people don't. Oh yeah. And so yep. getting into like plugging into those environments or, you know, getting out on the ocean in certain situations or climbing mountains. Like there's, there's certain things where you can yep. tap into that fear response a little bit and be like, I mean, it's cliche, but it's like a little more alive. Like I, I saw the, the one episode, uh, you had a leopard calling by you and you were describing the call. And I was I was in Africa oh, yeah. one time, and I'll never forget the first time I heard a leopard call close behind me, <laughs> and it was like, man, there's no you're not your attention isn't anywhere else but right there. When you hear that guttural, like just it's it's oh. wild, and it it just like takes all yep. of your focus, pushes everything out, and you're like, okay, now I need to pay attention to that thing, and it's just oh, yeah. that that's a response you don't get in life very often. Uh, I mean, I had I had a, a couple close encounters, you know, through these you know through these challenge, actually several close encounters, but one in which I was laying there, and I heard something rustling in my boma, which is where you protect yourself with thorns, and it's about about eight eight or so feet away. I could hear what sounded like something rustling. My mind, I was like, that's an African hare. You know, that's a spring hare, some kind of bat, some kind of bunny. Mm-hmm. So I threw little leaves on the fire, hoping it would flare up, hoping I might catch this bunny, you know, you know, you know, not paying attention. I club it. Cause mm-hmm. I mean, it's arm's length away. 
And uh, I'll flared it up and all of a sudden, poof, takes off and I hear it run. And I was like, hmm, it's a big bunny. That's, that's, I don't think that's a bunny. So no flashlight, anything. I didn't know what it was. First light, I go over there. A leopard had laid down on its side and was reaching in to the boma, pawing at me. But I had no idea. And, you know, you just don't have a clue that that would be something that, you know, you just might catch a, a damn leopard claw. If it, if it were to catch me, you know, it might have been just as scared as me, but it was trying to figure out what I was. Mm-hmm. And I thought, OK, after that thicker boma, more thorns. <laughs> and, uh, well, then I, uh, then you think, OK, now I got it to where no leopard can get in. And I'm in Africa and I'm sitting there and I hear something behind me. My brain's trying to process. I got the, I'm in this like half cave. It's actually a really neat cave. It's got cave paintings in it. It is, I mean, a cave from primitive men from years and years ago. Mm-hmm. It uh, on the ground is covered in flint napping, you know, little shards. And it's really is a cool spot. You can tell people live there, you know, for a lot of years. And I'm sitting there and I'm hearing this and I'm processing. What is that that I'm hearing? And I go to find out it is a snake just a couple feet behind my head. As I turn around, this snake goes into this crack. And, you know, that is when <laughs> the hunger sort of superseded my fear at that mm-hmm. point. And I thought, okay, that's a cobra, but this is my shelter and I need to eat and I don't want to live with the snake. And so you have these like, you know, this, this kind of priority of which one do you do? And I was, I mean, I was on edge as, as spooked as I could be. But at the same time, I asked my partner to hand me an arrow. She hands me an arrow. No way you could shoot an arrow into this inch and a half crack. But I took the arrow, which I bet I guess it's about a 30 inch arrow. Mm-hmm. This is about a 70 inch snake. So it's kind of a bad, bad uh, physics situation here. Mm-hmm. And as I'm looking in this crack, I'm looking, I get the arrow and I see it. I see it looking at me. And I was like, I better stick it close to its head and I have a broadhead on it. And so I was like, if I stick it in the middle of its body, you know, it's going to be able to bite me on both sides. So I was like, I got to get, I got to get up towards his head. And I thought, this is stupid. At the same time, I'm like, no, this is necessary. And to me, it felt like 100% necessary. I stabbed that cobra. I pull it out. I get a stick ready to club it. And, uh, and as I pull it out, its head clears and it shoots venom. It's a spitting cobra. Shoots venom in my eyes and my mouth. It must have been like this when I pulled it out because it shot me in the eyes and the mouth. Like, and so I immediately knew it was a spitting cobra. For obvious reasons, mm-hmm. threw it down, clubbed it, and I sat there and I was like, eyes are burning, adrenaline's going. I'm like, and I'm like, food. And so like, like I should have been like, holy shit, I almost died. You know, I could have died at this point. But mm-hmm. I was like, food. And my partner ran out. You know, she's scared hell. Came back in, and uh, and she's like, oh, that's a spitting cobra. Her mind is like, we need to get the hell out of here. They're spitting cobras. And I'm like, no, we get to, we get to eat it. Yep. And she's like, what? <laughs> And I was like, yeah, we get to eat it. And she's like, that's no, it's a spitting cobra. And I was like, yeah, that's how you get dinner. And, uh, and mind you, I had to flush my eyeballs out. Yep. And uh, she thought I was going to die. Luckily, uh, I knew that you could drink venom and be okay. Not that you want to, but you could take rattlesnake venom if you wanted to squirt it into a shot and drink it. As long as you don't have a bad ulcer or like mm-hmm. some kind of a, some internal issue where it could get in your bloodstream, you can swallow venom. No problem. It's not a poison. And uh, so I ended up, I had accidentally swallowed a lot of it because, like I said, I was like, when it hit me. And uh, and so I'm sitting there like that, flush my eyeballs out. 
and we're cooking this snake and she just didn't understand that that was our food. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was like, that's, you know, sometimes it's dangerous as hell, but like, you know, there it is. And it was, it, I was like, of course I killed it, you know, but at the same time, I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? It's a little arrow, long snake, not a good idea. So it's so wild. Um, do so when I think about that, you know, I, I kind of think everybody has that thing they're like just scared of, like whatever, whatever our ancestors got bit by. And, you know, I have buddies oh, yeah. who sometimes it's bears, sometimes it's snakes. For me, it's spiders. Like I, I hate spiders. I just do not. You want to see me turn into a little girl and run away? It's spider time. Like, do you have something like that? You know, I, I used to, um, I used to hate spiders. I used to like, if I saw a spider, the whole, I did not have to second myself and, you know, man up and try to kill that spider. But the, uh, after you sort of, you sort of get so many, Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, I got kind of like, we're now. It's not something that, like, you know, it might startle me because I've seen some spiders, so I think they're probably could carry me off. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, it's, it doesn't now no longer does it have that internal fear. Yep. But, uh, at the same time, I have scars all over my ankles, um, different parts of my legs from venomous spiders literally biting me. And it turns into like that, it's like a decomposing ball of mm-hmm. flesh and it leaves a scar. I've had maggots in it and like, oh, I mean, it's nasty stuff. And, you know, it gives me a big respect for spiders, mm-hmm. but it's weird that, uh, like that's something I used to hate and now I don't like them, but it doesn't draw, it doesn't make that adrenaline go with that yep. fear. Yeah. Um, snakes, you know, snakes, when I was a kid, I used to hate snakes. My dad made me hold snake, you know, he's like, hold it. And I was like, no, I ain't touching that snake. And, uh, then he had me hold it before long, you know, I was like, okay, you know, then I was here like a rattlesnake and I hated snakes so bad. You know, for a while there that I was like, you know, I just want to kill the snake. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to catch it alive, hold it, you know, and and that helped me kind of get over that. Mm-hmm. But it's a, you you know, the amount of spiders you have to get to get over the spiders is more than I would suggest you go into play with. Yeah, I don't, I don't know <laughs> if I'll ever get there. I mean, it, but you, you can and, you, you know, you're kind of talking about this weird immersion therapy almost. And I'm I got that way. um I spend so much time in the woods in the spring and so much time in the northern woods in the fall that I get just ticks. Like, I'm so used to ticks. You know, we, ha- we yeah. have tons of ticks here in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Yeah. And so, you know, they used to wig me out when I was young. And I've just, I've had so many of them. They don't bother me. But if I'm with one of my buddies who's not used to them as much, <laughs> I watch them. You know, like they find a tick on them and then they're just like wigged out all oh. over. And I'm just like, I move beyond that. So I get it. It just, it just feels like it'd be a hard thing to do. And I've, I've seen some of those uh, spiders in Africa. And I, I don't know how many you'd have to show me before I was okay with them, but it'd be a lot. Oh. Some of the, you know, some of the bugs, you know, are insane. Like, I mean, spiders, there's, there's a, a spider in Africa. I think actually it's all over the place, but it's a, um, it's called a scorpion spider. And, and I'll tell you what, if you're scared of spiders, you, you would hate that spider. It's almost completely harmless, but it has the front half of a scorpion and the body of a spider. And I've seen them like this big, Ugh. creepy. They got these big pinchers on them. And, uh, and once you realize, okay, that's actually a safe spider, that spider's not going to like, a, you know, not going to you know, hit me with venom or anything stupid. It's a, uh, it's like, okay, you know, still creepy looking, mm-hmm. but you know, and, and all right. It, uh, but I've seen some, I've seen some of these bugs and, you know, they don't put it in perspective of how big some of these spiders truly are. I mean, I've seen spiders that I hunt. I hunted a spider for like five minutes. Cause I thought it had to be like a little mammal. 
And I was going through the going through the leaves, and I'm like, I could hear it, and I'm sneaking up on it, and I'm trying to find it. And I finally realized that I was hunting like a just big, high speed looking tarantula, and uh, and I was like, oh, no. I would have swore it was like a squirrel sized animal. That's- but the uh, the biggest one of the biggest bugs I've ever seen in my life was in the Amazon. They call them spiny lobsters. And I, when I first heard that, I'm like, oh yes, you know, lobsters where they are in the water, and then they tell me they're in the trees. I'm like, whoa, this Amazon's got some weird, you know, animals. I figured I was visualizing crawfish, you know, mm-hmm. big old crawfish mm-hmm. lobster type thing in a tree. Well, a guy didn't really translate the properly what it was. And about five or so days in, I see a grasshopper. I kid you not, this grasshopper is bigger than this bottle of water. I mean, it's it is a <laughs> it's so big. I debated on shooting it with my bow. Because I was like, I, I don't think I should even touch this thing. This is like, I mean, the spines on it were like a quarter inch long, like the grasshoppers have on their legs. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh. And that that big, you know, that bug was like, I don't care who you are. Like, unless you're used to seeing something like that. When I go to grab it, and it made that same sounds grasshoppers do when they fly, that kind of zipping sound. Yep. Oh, I about lost my shit. I was like, oh. <laughs> this is, I know it's only a grasshopper, but God dang it. It's, it seems like it could probably kill me if it wanted to. But it just jumped, you know, insanely giant looking bugs. Those will creep anybody out, I think. Yeah. And, you know, the Amazon is an awesome place to find that stuff. When when you got on the show, when you got successful as a traditional bow hunter, did it, did that like change the direction? Because it seems so obvious when you see some of the people on there and you go, this person doesn't really seem to know how to hunt stuff. And then we see somebody <laughs> like you who you can watch and you go, okay, this guy knows how to shoot a bow and he knows how to think about how, you know, you're talking about being down, downwind of the water holes and you're doing, you're doing, yeah. or, you know, upwind and in my camp or whatever, however you're talking about it. And the, the things you're describing, I'm going, okay, this guy's thinking like a hunter. Did it change how they looked at it? Cause it's kind of like, Everything I saw, I'm like, this guy just dominates, and everybody else is sitting here like trying to catch catfish and mud puddles and stuff, and he's out there going big. <laughs> yeah, you know, it did change a lot because it's the first time that that really anybody showed the skills that that they could thrive and actually have a food storage. I mean, I was smoking the meat. I was, mm-hmm. you know, I had days and days worth of food storage. Now you didn't have that hunger that's constantly a threat, and as soon as they saw that, you know, okay, this can be done. And, uh, I'm in Africa by myself, you know, I kill four or five big game animals solo before I even join anybody. They realized, you know, like, Hey, you know, this is a pretty cool part of the story because, you know, maybe, maybe we'd rather see people not be hungry and try to see people succeeding. And after that, they've really, they've, they've put a lot of people into a successful situation. And they've, they've called me and asked me, Hey, you know, where, where would I put them? How could I, you know, how could I set them up? Um, what kind of longbow should they use? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's given a lot of, uh, you know, kind of the right situation to people. Now, not always are those people going to be primitive hunters. It's a big difference if you hunt with a rifle and you all of a sudden you got a longbow in your hand and you're trying to hunt something with a longbow. Yep. Um, but they will. They are now trying to give people the opportunities, the the moments to be truly successful, and it's a it's a neat thing to watch because it's tr- it's showing you know trying to show that you know that success if you work hard enough instead of uh, you know just being hungry or just digging mm-hmm. through the mud looking for something 
And uh, some people, like you'll see, you know, that's, you could obviously tell they've never hunted outside of a tree stand. Mm-hmm. And uh, nothing against tree stands, but it's something you learn when you're spotting stock that you don't learn in a tree stand. Yep. And then there's other things you learn when you are a primitive bow hunter that you would never learn with a rifle. And, you know, even a compound to yep. primitive bow is a huge difference because, you know, you have to sit there and practice every single day with that, you know, with that longbow because, you know, you don't have any kind of any kind of that mechanical equipment like you would even mm-hmm. a, like a, with a compound. Mm-hmm. And every day you're getting a little different muscle memory. You're you're you may be getting more tired. You may be having adrenaline rush. And with a longbow, you have to be able to know what you're going to do in each one of those situations because, you know, just a tiny little flip of your finger and that's going to miss by hell. It, uh, you know, compound bows hard enough. Mm-hmm. But when you step down in skill level um, or in, I guess, in technology level, yep. it's a, it really, it height, you have to height, you know, do certain things that you never would have normally had to do. And, you know, on the show, you'll see a lot of people trying to learn that on the fly. And it's a bad place to learn it. <laughs> yeah. It's, no. a, it's a really horrible timing. That's a, that's the hardest thing to get across with traditional bows is just the amount you, you got to love the process of shooting because you got to do it a lot. And, you know, yep. that, that's what I saw when I was watching you when, it, you know, the first animals that were approaching on that one water hole, you know, it's, it's really hard to tell how far away they are, but I'm looking at it and you, you know, if you're sitting there with a compound, you know, the oh. wildebeest, the guinea fowl, everything. It's like, okay, yeah. that, that's probably not too big of a problem. But yeah. the difference between 30 yards and 15 yards when you're talking with a traditional bow is huge. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just tr- a tremendous change. And so no. the challenge and, – and you see people – you know, I, I grew up bow hunting and I've, I've hunted with traditional bows. I hunt with compounds a lot. You, when, even when you grow up doing that, it's still really hard really oh, hard and to ask somebody to just pick it up and go hey for this show can you start shooting this longbow and go kill yeah. a wildebeest in africa like uh that's a big yeah. ask oh it's a big ask for sure it's you know and it's one of those things like something as simple as with a compound you can pull back and hold it well as you see an animal walking in you hold it and that animal will stop and you can get that shot well i can't tell you how many times i've taken i pulled it back while that animal's head was behind a tree <laughs> and that longbow oh you sit there and try to hold a 65 pound longbow back for, you know, for a few seconds before you know it, you better not shoot because it's just not going to work out. Yep. And you know, that little, just something like that is a uh, hard for hard for somebody who's never hunted, you know, with a bow to really understand that you have to pull back at the right time. Otherwise it's going to spook. Um, you know, this lot of animals, especially Africa are fast. Mm-hmm. String jump is crazy fast with a longbow. Super, it's super, I yep. think I've watched Impala spring jump my arrow twice before it even got there. You know, mm-hmm. like, it's just like, man, I think they, they jumped it and then hit the ground and jumped again before it even, you know, got yep. to them. And so I had to realize quick that, you know, you can't just shoot a 40 yard shot. You can't even hardly shoot a 30 yard shot unless that animal's not looking, not paying attention. You know, you need them at 15, 20 yards it, uh, to make a good ethical shot because, yep. One thing will happen is, you know, and I'm sure you, I'm sure it happens. You don't see it on the show much because they don't have that time to like cover all the, the small details. But if you hit it a little far back and we're back home and we hit it far back, it, uh, you know, that thing runs out. OK, you wait, you wait for the next day. Well, in, in Africa, you wait the next day. The animal's eaten. It's yeah. gone. Well, then you're up barefoot. And if you try walking 
you know, and you hit a far back shot and that thing goes a half mile. Well, half mile of walking, depending on where it's at, may not be a physical, like a thing that, that a person can actually physically keep up to that animal. So you have to hit them in the right spot. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it's going to go who knows where. And you know, it's, and it's gone. I mean, I, I shot an Impala. I shot an Impala good shot actually on an Impala hit one lung the way it quartered towards me when it jumped the string. So it got at least one lung, but it turned and ran, ran between elephants. And, uh, and I had to wait till these elephants left. And I thought, okay, how long could it take? You know, I'm not about to walk in there and try to push around an elephant. It's not a good idea. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm waiting about an hour and half, maybe two hours. Elephants finally left, finally moseyed on. And so I followed up my blood trail, followed up, followed up, see a leopard track. Okay. Followed up, see a hyena track. And all of a sudden about it was maybe 80, 90 yards, you know, around the corner from where I was sitting, a conversion of animals, leopard, hyena, and lion met. I don't know which one got it. All I know was some hair left and it was gone. And I was like, that's an hour and a half. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it, oh, you know, it's, it really goes to show like there's that much, you know, competition out there. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you're not, you're not going to win it. Yeah, yeah, the 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 cleanup efficiency in Africa is pretty freaking wild, and it, oh, it you know is. those, <laughs> you know, you mentioned those impala, and just how jumpy some of those critters are, and they they seem to be especially aware of that when they approach water because they probably get hunted in concentrations yeah. and places like that more often. And I'll yeah. never forget, I, I hunted Africa one time in you know 2007 or something, and I, I was hunting with a compound. And the first animals that walked into the water hole I was on were uh, impala. And I was in one of those like pit blinds kind of where you're low, oh, yeah. um, almost shooting up at ground level. Yeah. And these impala walked in. It was like, you know, 20 yard shot, 22 yard shot. And I drew and put my pin on that impala and shot. And it was like the impala disappeared. And then an impala <laughs> fell from the sky and ran away. <laughs> And it was such yeah. uh I was just, it, it jumped that string so bad. It like, I couldn't even, my, my brain was like, that can't be right. Like something, yeah. you, you just had a glitch in here, buddy. Like something happened to yeah. the matrix and they're just, yeah. you know, and so taking a 30 yard shot with a, a longbow. I mean, it's just, oh. it's a wild scenario. Um, has it always been traditional bows for you? You know, I've, I've shot a traditional bow since, since a kid. I mean, I've shot some compound. Um, just to try them out. But I, for some reason I was always drawn to that, you know, to that traditional bow. Mm -hmm. And then probably about, about 10, 15 years ago, I took up the atlatl. And if you're familiar with the atlatl, it's the old, it's yep. essentially what predated the bow. And it's a long, you know, six foot to seven foot long, you know, essentially flexible shaft. It, uh, the atlatl is a wooden section in your hand. And I started throwing those. And then I started hunting with them, started shooting fish, started shooting some rabbits, going for some small game grouse. And, you know, then I moved up, get, you know, get deer to get hogs and that kind of, it took that, that hunting traditional, you know, longbow gear. <laughs> and then it really, it took me, made me focus on now there's no way in hell you could throw this atlatl dart if they're, if they're getting ready to twitch, you know, before that thing hits. Mm -hmm. And so you had to always, you know, select your shot, right. You had to get your wind, right. You had to get everything about getting super close. Cause now you're talking. Now you're talking 10 yards and closer. And that really helped kind of magnify the game a bit. But I still would use a longbow. And, you know, whenever I wanted to go out, you know, and, and get some good hunting in. And then I always tell people, like, 
if you want to go and fill the freezer, you just that's when you grab the rifle. Yeah. Because if you're going to hunt with a longbow, you're going to hunt a lot. If you're going to hunt with a compound bow, you're also going to hunt a lot. But, uh, but you know, if you need to fill a freezer, it's, you know, it's a good chance. You might have a better chance with the old rifle. <laughs> yeah, it's uh... – you know, we, we talk about this a lot on here because we talk mostly about bow hunting on this podcast and people ask me to do gun shows and, you know, I gun hunt once in a while. It's pretty, it's pretty rare these days. And it's just because it doesn't, uh, you know, when, once you've grown up bow hunting, I'm just not interested in killing something at a couple hundred yards and I'm, I'm not knocking that. I'm just, yeah. it's just, you know, you know what it's like to be close to them and that's the rush. And so it's just, it doesn't feel the same for me. And I haven't rifle hunted for quite a few years, be just because once, once you get to that point, it's like, I just don't want to go back. I know what I enjoy now. And it sounds like yeah. you've moved like two steps further ahead with that. And now you're with an Adelaide that, and th those are not legal in, are, are they legal in Colorado? Yeah. So that Adelaide is not legal in Colorado yet, but it is legal. I think in about 27 or 28 States. Yep. It is a, uh, um, it follows into the spear hunting category still. Mm -hmm. It's a, uh, it's definitely far from using a spear. I mean, I don't know anybody who could throw a 150 yard spear throw, but with the atlatl, you can actually, you know, you have that, you have such an advantage with the, uh, over a spear, but it's still, it's, there's not enough people that do it. So you're not going to find a, uh, you're not going to find a whole lot of, of new legislation, you know, changing for different States, yep. um, unless they already had the spear hunting category in place, yep. but it is, it is a blast that I always tell people if, you know, go out and hunt small game with it and you'll learn a lot about, you know, sneaking up close and, and not moving until they're moving. And, and it's, it's a quiet weapon. I mean, once you throw it, there is no sound. There's no, there's no string twitch. There's nothing that goes on. It's just the sound of like a bird's wings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, once you kind of get that accuracy down, you really have, you have good success, you know, for what it is. You have good success with, you know, going out awesome for grouse. Um, awesome for, you know, the, some of that small game stuff mm -hmm. that just, you know, you want an extra challenge for. Do, do you make your own? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I make my own. It's actually part of our company too. I actually sell some it, uh, for people who, uh, if you don't have access to the darts is what they refer to it as the long arrows. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's hard to get those. So we actually have those milled out specifically out of ash for that purpose. Um, because other than that, you have to use willow, straighten up the willow or river cane. Um, there's lots of ways you can do it, but mm -hmm. the, uh, kind of a neat history with that weapon is used on almost every single continent, except for Antarctica throughout history, throughout time, everyone used the atlatl it, uh, in Australia, it was called a Woomera and that's what the uh, Aborigines still used. Um, they even used them up in like the, uh, the uh, Inuit Eskimos, um, used them all the way up North. We used them here in the United States, North America, um, region. We used them almost exclusively until essentially the uh um we started getting the spanish started bringing over like horses and things mm -hmm. the atlatl was used i mean to hunt a lot of these buffalo on the plains to hunt your woolly mammoth to hunt these big animals because it has a lot more kinetic energy than a than a standard um stick bow would ever dream of having i mean you could uh, the atlatls you got a good seven foot atlatl dart with a about a 350 pound broadhead on the front and it's it, oddly enough, it's delivering like 75 to 80, all the way up to like 90 foot pounds of kinetic energy. So it's like, I mean, it's killing any big game animal on earth stuff. That's amazing. Which is, you know, and it's, and it's not trailing, you know, when you throw it, it's kind of funny because you're like, that's not going very fast. But you're throwing about like eight or 10, you know, plus arrows, 
you know, worth of weight. Mm-hmm. And it's going about, you know, about a third of what our bow shoots an arrow. But it's because it weighs so much, that sectional density, when it hits, it's amazing. I mean, I've taken a deer right off its feet because of the pure mass of it hitting. And it hits the ground, like, completely off its feet. And, you know, that is something an arrow would never do. But these things are, I mean, it's, it is, it's, a, fun, it's a fun way to test yourself, you know, a little bit. At, uh, um, you know, some states, like I said, it's about 28 states. I think, if I recall, I think Kansas or Nebraska couple years ago, a guy first year hunting with it shot one that almost rivaled the state, uh, shot a, yep. a buck that almost rivaled the state record. Yep. I saw neat. that. I think, wasn't Missouri the first state to legalize them? I think so. Yeah. Yep. It, uh, yep. And then they, uh, I mean, they're, they're legal all the way up in Alaska. Um, I went up to Alaska to try to get a moose with it and I couldn't find a moose with darn three, three brow tines yep. for the out of state regulation. And, uh, so I rubber blunted, not, not to say I rubber blunted, but possibly rubber blunted some some targets to uh um to just the uh get myself tuned in but i was like i i felt like without a doubt i could have got a moose if i could have found mm-hmm. you know a moose that was legal size do you think you'd get a pass through on a moose it uh i think it i think it'd stick out yeah the other side or just barely you know it's a it's with they flex so much yep that when they hit it has a huge entrance wound and a even bigger exit wound. So they're flexing so much when they hit, they don't usually go through yep. because it flexes and ends up stopping. But it, it gets it gets almost on average almost always like two feet of um, two feet of penetration, even if it hits shoulder blades and and different things. It just doesn't like to go, you know, all the way through. Oddly enough, unless it was further away, if you took like a forty yard shot, it starts the flex starts coming out. It goes pretty straight. Uh-huh. It might actually pass through easier at forty yards than it would closer because of that flex uh, there's got to be some youtube slow-mo video of that out there uh yeah somewhere it's a, it is it's it's pretty neat the way it works it just you know just like those tennis ball launchers they use for dogs now same yep. concept except you're throwing a you know a flexible spear yeah it, it what's cool about that is you know that however many thousands of years ago they were throwing spears and somebody had a basic grasp on physics and said, man, if we can get a little more leverage here and something, you know, maybe they were fishing or something. And they said, man, if we can get our spear set on this thing and I can do this and that that they had parallel thinking on every continent, at least where they had wood to work with. That's, that's incredible. It's yeah. You know, and it's kind of interesting, like, uh, like the Aborigines in Australia, they never adapted the stone broadhead, you know, that we know as the as the flint arrowhead, um, or as a you know, they they either don't have the right kind of rock to do it, mm-hmm. or they never had the necessity to do it for getting the kangaroo and the wallabies and different things they get. That they just used a tapered wooden shaft, fire hardened, and just skewer it. Mm-hmm. And you know, then other parts of you know other parts of the world, they you know they were making they use them more for fishing. Other parts they used them you know, exclusively to hunt the big woolly mammoth, the big, you know, woolly rhinos, the things that we had back in the day. And, you know, then they had to have the steel, you know, the stone points, mm-hmm. you know, for them. So it's, it's neat that it's the same, same concept, you know, all over the place. It's just, you know, and then at some point somebody was like, Hey, this stick is pretty flexible. Let's stick this little shorter thing in here make a, you know, make ourselves a little weapon that you can, that you can carry, and shoot at all these smaller game, you know, stuff a little easier. And then, you know, until modern day now, we've, you know, invented something like the compound, which is, 
mind blowing. If you were to show that to a person 10,000 years ago, it'd like blow their mind. Well, if you, if you showed, if you could go back to 1960 and show them our compounds, now oh. they would, you, you know what I mean? 1970. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it would be wild. So, so what's next? Like grizzly bears with a slingshot or what, what do you got <laughs> planned? <laughs> Why not? It's a, uh, you know, for most part, it's a, uh, it's constantly going out there trying to, uh, you know, trying to test on another, on another big game. It, uh, I'd still like to get that moose with the outlatl. It, uh, but uh, hell, I might need to student with the longbow first. <laughs> it, uh, it's a, uh, you know, it's constantly, you know, I think what all of us do is our pursuit of, of being in the outdoors. And then it just, you know, that pursuit just ends up, ends up taking us into the different hunting seasons and, mm-hmm. and, uh, to spend our time out in the wild. It get, it gets us out there. So what, what all do you have going on? You're making knives. Um, you got survival training going on as well. Yep. Yep. So I, uh, so I make knives at, uh, my company extreme instinct. I started making knives way back in 2005 and, you know, I make custom hunting knives. Um, you know, anything from custom hunting knives, kitchen knives, camping knives, survival knife. And we do a lot of that, um, through all times of the year, but then we also take people out and do survival classes. And what's, what's neat now is we used to be doing the classes here in Colorado exclusively, but now we're actually branching out and we've got a property down in Florida where we actually have, we've got wild pigs on it. We've got, mm-hmm. you know, all the, all the wild swamps and, the, and it feels like you just stepped into a whole nother country of, of wildlands. And so we, uh, we're actually branching out now. We're going to be doing survival classes about half the year in Florida where you could go out kind of a custom survival class where you could go out and you could learn the survival techniques. You can live it if you want. Um, or you could just learn it, then jump on our boat. We'll go bow fish some fish, you know, shoot some stingrays, shoot some, you know, shoot some other fish with the bow. You could catch some sharks if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, then go back to survival or, you know, just combo it all in the same day. So it's, it is a, uh, it's kind of a neat, kind of a neat, uh, private, you know, private type of, uh, charter that we're setting up now mm-hmm. do so you excited about that do you get people who spend the night outside in florida oh yeah yep. and, they, and the mosquitoes <laughs> don't carry them away it's a, you know, they, they were about 10 pounds lighter i think oh. but the uh it's a uh you know and it's one of those you learn real quick certain little tricks you can do with a fire in your shelter to like to keep those mosquitoes at bay um oh. one of the things that that are hard mosquitoes, spiders, scorpions, you can get those to leave almost always with ash and fire and smoke. But there's certain things you just can't hardly, you can't stop. And when they're out there, sand flies, mm-hmm. um, sand flies are absolutely horrific. You'll see uh, this year, um, sometime in July, August, you'll see the latest naked and afraid I did. And uh, let's just say there were some sand flies. And we'll also say that I went into a bit of an epileptic shock Oof. from so many bites overloading my system. I couldn't swallow. I could barely breathe, started getting dizzy. And uh, it was insane Oof. to think that the tiniest little no cm size sandfly could do that. But that's a, uh, that's the reality of it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't stay away with smoke, mud, nothing. You couldn't, you couldn't like, couldn't stop it. They would just, they just get you. So isn't that so such an interesting lesson? I mean, you, you've kind of touched on this a bunch of times, but 
you know, everybody thinks about the cobras and the leopards and the big stuff that, you know, like we've for some reason been conditioned to think is like the real threat. And then you look at, yeah. you know, what kills the most people? It's not freaking leopards. It's mosquitoes, you know, carrying yeah. malaria exactly. or, you know, you think like, oh man, I can survive out in the wild in Florida. I don't have to worry about the snakes or anything. Or I, I can, I can, I, I can build good defenses against that. And then there's some dumb little fly that you cannot yeah. beat. And it, and it and it sends you to the hospital. I mean, it's it's wild how how varied and just unforgiving nature can really be. Oh, it is. It makes you appreciate appreciate the things you know when you have those days without bugs. The days you have good weather, and then you get out there, and some days it's just it's a perfect storm. I mean, mm-hmm. when you uh, when this when this episode airs, it uh, you'll see you'll see me and this say uh, hitting that perfect storm. You know, right off the bat, it, uh, you know, I had about four hours, maybe six hours of, of perfection where I was ahead of the game, had food. I was like, ah, oh, this is no problem. Mm-hmm. And then you get out there and you're like, wow, you know, just a t-shirt could have protected a third of my body, probably would have been just fine. Yep. You know, no allergic reaction to it. But even a pair of pants, even swim trunks would have been helpful. <laughs> it, uh, but without that, it was it was relentless amount of bugs. It, uh, um, I have some partners on that one. He won't, we didn't sleep for three days and, uh, didn't sleep, didn't almost stop standing. It was, ins- it was, it's most insane moment that I truly, I'll never be able to capture by any footage, but it, uh, will always be there haunting my memories of that. It can get really bad. Ugh. And, uh, then it got better. So you're like, yeah, it could always get better. <laughs> hopefully. Well, I mean, it, it, hopefully it always gets better. Um, we, we need to wrap this up, buddy. I want to ask you one last question. So if you could hop back into a time machine, go back to, let's say, 18-year-old Matt, what would you tell him about your life? What, what would you say, hey, buddy, definitely do this, definitely turn this down, think about this? What, what advice would you give a, a young Matt back in, in the past? Man, I probably would have told told young 18-year-old Matt to uh, to not chase the ladies and go chase more elk. It uh, <laughs> would have created a lot less drama. I bet he wouldn't have um, listened. <laughs> but the uh, but it uh, I definitely you know def- definitely tell him to keep following the passion and uh, and don't let uh, don't let that you know the buggy old work get in the way. And uh, then it would have it would have stopped a lot of uh, you know of, of missed opportunities and uh, and get, you know given some more opportunities, but. You know, I've learned my lesson from that. Now I continue to try to follow the passion. <laughs> Good for you, man. Um, where can everybody find your knives? Where can everybody find you on social media? And, uh, so if you check out extremeinstinct.com, that's um, Extreme Instinct with an E. And uh, and extremeinstinct.com, you'll see our knives. You'll see all the selection we have. We do a lot of custom-made stuff, a lot of stuff in survival classes. So if there's something you want, you don't see it on there, it, uh, just uh, contact us and we can build it for you. Um, and then you'll also see us on... Uh, um, uh, we're on Facebook, um, Instagram is extreme underscore, um, instinct and you know, we're around. So if you, anybody wants to contact us, just, just holler at us and let the adventures begin. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, man. And for sure. It was good to be on here. Thank you so much for listening. I can't honestly put into words how much I appreciate anyone taking the time to check into the hunt for real podcast. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe so you can get the latest episodes each week as we drop them. You can also find us at huntforreal.com, 
our YouTube channel where we'll be putting up tips and films throughout the year, as well as through all the usual suspects when it comes to social media. Again, thank you so much for listening.